Our reading tonight is from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 7 through 24. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little of olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that, wait, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the, land, until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, you have, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is... Thank you, Meredith. If I haven't met you, hello, I'm Libby. I'm one of the clergy, the ministers, the vicars, the priests, whatever term you want to refer to me. Do come and say hello uh, at the end. I'll be sort of hovering around somewhere in this building. It'd be great to say hello and welcome you. I wonder if you've ever had one of those like Susan Boyle moments. Do you know who I mean when I say Susan Boyle? British, Britain's Got Talent, yeah, yeah. Is she from Glasgow? Bathgate. Okay, right, I believe you. Um, anyway, um, one of those moments where you see somebody and then they do something which completely blows your mind and it is not what you expect to happen at all. 
Do you know those moments where something happens and it just blows your expectations out of the water? Why don't you just chat to somebody next to you or behind you, say hello if you don't know them. Have you got an example of that happening to you where something's happened and it really wasn't expected? Have a chat just for a couple of minutes. Okay, if you're in mid-flow of conversation, apologies, you can carry on telling your story at the end. Uh, this person here uh, that's just about to pop onto the screen is somebody called uh, Dr. James Barry. And he studied uh, medicine in Edinburgh, not last year, as you can probably see from the photograph, in the early 1800s, in fact. And then he entered the British Army, became a really senior surgeon, uh, and went off to work for the army in Africa. And at one point, he was, well, he was one of the first people ever to do a cesarean section uh, where both the mother and the child survived. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? When I heard about that, I thought, that it just didn't, it never occurred to me that that was such a massive thing. But of course it was at that time. He went on to work in Canada as well. And in 1857, he became the inspector general of all the hospitals in Canada. He also had a real heart for the poor and homeless people and, and did loads uh, across the, the, the world, really, to enable uh, people who couldn't afford doctors and medical care to be able to access access some care of some kind. Uh, Dr. Barry died in 1865 after an incredibly successful career. Unusually, he asked that after he died that his body would remain clothed and unwashed before he was buried. Now the nurses ignored Barry's wishes. And when they took his clothes off to prepare him for burial, they made a rather unexpected discovery because James was in fact a woman. It then came to light that actually James was Margaret. Uh, and as a young girl, Margaret had always wanted to be properly educated and it was something that was denied her at that point in time. Uh, she wanted to be a doctor, and again, women were not allowed to be doctors at that point. And so she and her brothers hatched a plan. Uh, first of all, they paid for her to be educated up to the sort of university age, which again was really unusual at that time. Uh, they managed to get her a really good education. And then at the age of about 18 or 19, her eldest brother, James, died, which was perfect timing for her because what the brothers did, and she did, is that they enabled her to take on James Barry's identity. So Margaret Barry became James Barry, and she started dressing in really, she became quite known for these huge overcoats, um, which now we know why that was. And she lived as a man in order to train to be a doctor. Uh, to be the doctor that she'd always wanted to be. And as a result, saved many, many people's lives. Now, I love this story for a number of reasons, but mainly because here was someone who found a way to work around and defy expectations uh, uh, of the time of what a woman was capable of. And I'm so pleased that those nurses ignored the wishes and decided to take 
her clothes off at the end. Otherwise, this would not even be a story in history. So this passage today is one of those Bible stories where God blows apart expectations of who he is and what he is capable of doing in the world and in people's lives. As he takes an impossible situation and shows that in his power, he can make anything possible. So we're going to be looking at this passage from 1 Kings uh, that Meredith read for us. Uh, there are some of these red Bibles at the back if you like a real life book. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 7. Uh, there's going to be uh, verses on the screen as well if you prefer, or you can get your Bible app open as well. So a bit of background to 1 Kings 17. At this time, the people of Israel were under the rule of King Ahab. Um, he's married to Jezebel, who's known as like the wicked queen. Um, and, and, and Ahab and Jezebel had introduced the worship of Baal, uh, a false god, an idol, to the people of Israel. And so God has raised up his prophet, Elijah, to be like his main man, to tackle with him the problem of Ahab and all this Baal worship that's going on. And in a pretty feisty move early on in Elijah's ministry, uh, Elijah tracks down King Ahab and he goes up to him and he sort of, you know, has a bit of a, a feisty chat with him. And then he says, the God who I serve is going to send a drought on this land. And from that moment on, Ahab is basically after Elijah. He, he, is, he does not like him at all. That's probably an understatement. And so Elijah goes off and God leads him to this stream. And he goes and hangs out in this stream. So the drought, not in the stream, by the stream. And, uh, well, he might have gone in the stream sometimes when he needed to wash. Um, but he goes and hangs out by this stream during this drought. So whilst everybody else is struggling for food and for water, God provides Elijah with fresh water every day. And in some like ancient Deliveroo thing, ravens come every day and bring um, Elijah food while he's hanging out by his stream. And then we get to verse 7, which was the beginning of our reading today. Elijah's fresh water supply has run out because it's a drought. And so God is one step ahead. And this is the story of Elijah's life, if you want to continue reading through 1 Kings. And God speaks really clearly at this point to Elijah. He tells him, get up from your stream, go to a place called Zarephath, and stay there. And you're going to meet a woman. And I was reading this saying, you know, Elijah, God spoke really clearly in this moment to Elijah. You know, why don't I hear God like this? Why doesn't he give me such clear direction when I need it? You know, get up, go somewhere, you're going to meet this person, they're going to say this, and they're going to sort it all out. And I was pondering this and thinking, well, maybe God does speak to me like this. Because now, of course, we have God's word the Bible. And it's like his manual to us for how to do life the best way he designed it for us. And it's available always for us to refer to when we need guidance, when we need direction, when we need to hear God's voice. But also, as we've been looking at in our sermons for the last nine weeks, we've got the Holy Spirit as well, who fills us and it was sent to guide us into all truth. 
And so maybe if I struggle sometimes to hear God's voice, it's not that God isn't speaking clearly to, to me, it's maybe something about me. Maybe it's me who's the stumbling block, either because I expect God to speak, but I don't listen, or frankly, he tells me what to do, but if it isn't what I want to hear, or it isn't an easy option for me, I choose to ignore him. I hope that's not just me, and some of you are empathizing with me here. But when we look here at the story of Elijah, um, we find that following God is not easy, is it? It has challenges. The first uh, challenge that Elijah faces here is that he's sent to Zarephath. Um, I think we've got a little map somewhere, Zach, uh, on one of the slides. Uh, You'll see that he was at this brook, Kerith, and he has to go to Zarephath. That is actually about 100 miles. So that's the biggest challenge he has to face right at the beginning. God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to shove you off somewhere. It's 200 meters down the road. He sends him on a 100-mile journey without any public transport. Not that we can really rely on it today, but anyway, that's a whole other situation. I don't think he even had a donkey or a horse. Let's put it like that. Walk through the desert, you know, and he had, it would have been a really grueling, grueling journey. And I'm sure that numerous times when he was on that journey, he was like, God, what are you doing? Why did you tell me to do this? But he keeps following. And he would have faced danger, maybe near-death experiences. And then he arrives at Zarephath, and what a letdown. There's not even a Starbucks. Not only that, there's not even a water fountain waiting him. Because Zarephath is also under the same drought that he was experiencing down in Kerith as well. And the first person he meets as he enters that town, as he nears the gates, is a woman, a widow, who's just out gathering sticks. And when he asks her desperately, not surprisingly, you know, have you got a drink of water for me? And then as an afterthought, you know, can you bring me some bread as well? He finds out that she's in a desperate situation as well. Look at verse 12. It's going to come up on the screen. As surely as the Lord lives, the woman says to him, I don't have any bread. It's just a bit like, you know, what are you thinking, man? You know, I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm actually out gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself uh, and my son, and then we're going to eat it before we die. It's just a desperate, hopeless situation she's in. She says, I know the Lord lives. She knows the Lord lives, Elijah's Lord, but she's preparing herself to die. Frankly, to her, the fact that God exists, his being alive at all, is making no practical difference to her life. All she can see in that moment is the impossibility of her situation. This certain death that she sees before her once her and her son have had their final meal. Can you imagine? It just blows my mind. What even blows my mind even more is that people face this sort of situation today in 2022. 
And there are so many situations in our world and in our lives which can lead, leave us feeling the same. You know, I know that the Lord lives, but look at the reality of the situation in Ukraine at the moment. It's just desperate. God, what's going on? Or, I know the Lord lives, but what about this pain that I'm experiencing? I know the Lord lives, but what about my friend who's struggling every day to keep their head above water? You know, I know the Lord lives, but why is my life in such a mess? And the impossibility of the world, the impossibility of some of the situations that we or people close to us might find ourselves in can feel overwhelming. We know the Lord lives and... But something happens here in this moment for this woman because she sees the absolute hopelessness and impossibility of her situation but Elijah, he sees the possibility of her situation. She sees the impossibility. He sees the possibility of her situation. And for the first time in this encounter, it's like Elijah stands in the gap between God and this woman. So how is Elijah, who is in a pretty dire circumstances as well, let's face it, able to see the possibilities? Well, I think it's because he's been there before. Elijah has already experienced God's miraculous rescue. We were just uh, talking about how uh, God provided for him when he was hanging out by that stream. He knows that God is faithful. Doesn't mean life's always easy for him, but he's known God to be faithful, and he's known God turn around an impossible situation and bring possibilities out of it. And Elijah knows, therefore, that God can do that again. And it's often in these desperate moments, isn't it, when we feel like we've got nothing left, uh, that we cling on to what we know of God. We know that God is love. We know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin so that I might be forgiven, so that I might be free, so that I might have eternal life and life in the present now. And we cling on to those truths. And we also can cling on to our experience of God, which is what Elijah was doing. He knew what God could do, but he'd also experienced God in his life as well. Numerous times in my life, I've been in difficult places and I've prayed, right God, something along these lines, this is how I talk to God, right God, I know you can do this. I need you to change this situation, to make the impossible possible. Uh, I can't do this. I don't even know what I need to ask for you, uh, for you for, but I need you and I want you, and I need you to transform this situation. And I pray like that, with that sort of boldness, because I know that God has been and will continue to be faithful. You know, I know that God uh, provides, for example, 
because he has provided for me and my family before. Uh, just a classic uh, story from my life was that when I was a teenager, um, my mum ha never had any money for anything, but never had any money when we had like an electricity bill or a gas bill or something like that. And on the day that the gas bill and electricity bill had to be paid, it was obviously quite a stressful time in our house. But for years, these brown envelopes used to come through our door on the day the bill had to be paid with the exact amount of money in it to pay that bill. We never knew, still don't know, who put, God prompted to put that money through the door. I've known God guide me in amazing ways as well. And so therefore, I feel confident to, to pray boldly for guidance again. You know, maybe I need to have a difficult conversation with somebody and I'm dreading it. None of us like doing those sorts of things, do we? And I desperately want to get it right for the person. Uh, and so I say to God, God, I need you to just open the way for me, to give me wisdom, to know what to say, what questions to ask, and to just open up that exact right moment. And then he does. And it's sometimes completely mind-blowing. I'm the sort of person that says to God, right, I need them to say exactly this and then I'll know it's the moment. And the number of times that happens is pretty wacky. You know, my experience of God's faithfulness enables me to trust him along with what I know of him from God's word. And it enables me to trust him in the big things and the small things every day. But if I never invite him to do the miraculous and I just plow through life on my own, I'm just not allowing God to be God in my life. And so do you, do I need to expand our imaginations of what God can do in our lives and in his world and pray for the seemingly impossible things? Maybe that's a challenge for you today. So Elijah has confidence in God's power to do something miraculous because he's known God to be faithful before. And then he asked the woman, Come and join me in faith, verses 13 and 14. He says, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, i.e. make the loaf of bread. And then 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Did you notice the first thing that Elijah says to the woman here is, don't be afraid. You know, I think there's something deeply em empathic in this moment because he sees this woman's fear. Maybe fear of the hopelessness of her situation. Maybe she's scared of him. You know, he's just some random prophet guy. He's probably looking a complete mess. He's rocked up in her patch, and he's thinking, what are his intentions? Maybe she's just fearful of death, which she believes is going to happen imminently. Maybe she's fearful of just really trusting in God. And so Elijah sees that fear, whatever it was, and he speaks directly into that fear, and he says, do not be afraid. Do you know that in the Bible, the phrase, do not fear or do not be afraid, occurs 365 times. That's once for every day of the year. Um, isn't that amazing? 
Do not fear, do not be afraid. Just a couple for you. John 4, Jesus says, Jesus talks about, you know, don't be afraid, do not fear all the time. He says in John 4, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in Isaiah 41, God says, so do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Maybe Elijah says, don't be afraid, because he knows that's one of the barriers to the woman really trusting in God. I wonder if it's fear that's stopping you and I fully trusting Jesus. You know, fear that he might not answer the prayer in the way that I want him to. Maybe fear of being let down. Maybe you're scared of trusting because it might mean God lets you down this time. Or maybe it's fear of letting somebody else down that you're carrying. Maybe you're carrying a fear of not being good enough. And so maybe tonight God wants to say to you, do not be afraid. I am with you. And so Elijah says to the woman, do not be afraid. Come and join me in faith, in trusting that God will provide. And he does. God is faithful because God goes and meets this woman in her kitchen while she's cooking. Uh, you know, we hear that she goes in and she makes her the bread and takes it out uh, to Elijah. But then she has this like never-ending bowl of flour and jug of oil. Every day in her kitchen, she experiences the faithfulness of God. Maybe God wants to meet you in your kitchen or your place of work, wherever it is, and remind you that he is faithful. So God commands, Elijah's faithful. The woman learns to trust in God. God does an incredible miracle of provision. The oil and flour never runs out. It turns their expectations on their head. And then it happens all over again if you look in verses 17 to 24. Because we find out that sometime later, the widow's only son becomes so ill that he dies. Death has caught up with her at last. You know, they've escaped death once. And now here she is, desperately holding on to her son, who is not just her son, but is her lifeline. She's a widow. It's only through her son that she'll be able to survive whatever years she has ahead as her provider. And here her son is dead and she's holding on to him, clinging on to him, desperate. What hopelessness. You can't imagine it, can you? And as so often happens in moments of deep tragedy and deep grief, she needs somebody to blame. And so who does she turn to? The person that's closest to her, because that's usually what happens. She says to Elijah, verse 18, "'What do you have against me, man of God?' Did you come to remind me of, of my sin and kill my son? You know, she's desperate. She thinks that this is the end, that death is the end. And again, she's facing the hopelessness and the impossibility of her situation. But in the midst of this terrible situation, Elijah just comes over to her calmly and confidently, doesn't he? He trusts God to do a miracle. 
He's experienced God rescuing a few times in his life. But there's something different here. A a guy called Ian Proven points this out. It was one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can God do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim up? And that's what's happening in this story here. And so what happens next is really remarkable. Because up to this point, there is no account in the Bible, in the stories that Elijah will have known, being spoken about and shared in his community, of God raising anyone from the dead. But somehow, in the midst of this seemingly impossible situation, Elijah believes that God can make the impossible possible. Elijah has the faith that God can transform this situation that they're in. And again, it's like he stands in the gap. He takes the the boy from the woman and he just silently carries her upstairs to the room he's been staying in. And there's something really vulnerable about Elijah in this moment. You know, this great man of God who has got this incredible experience of God working in his life. Uh, You know, he's not afraid to, to question God and like bang on God's door. He says, oh Lord my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow I'm staying with, causing her son to die? There's real vulnerability here. But he's vulnerable, but he's also faithfully trusting the God of the impossible. Because Elijah once again stands in this gap for the widow and goes on to plead with God on her behalf. You know, as Christians, Jesus calls us to action. Not indifference, but wholeheartedness. He doesn't call us to half-heartedness. He calls us to come alongside people and stand in the gap with those who are struggling, those who are broken-hearted, those who are facing injustice, those who are oppressed. I wonder where God might be calling you and I to be that for somebody else, to stand in the gap. And to do that, Elijah demonstrated time and time again that we have to be vulnerable ourselves. Because if you think about it, if you're going to help somebody out of a pit, whatever that pit might be, yes, you need to be stood on firm ground, don't you? So that you're on solid ground to be able to help them out. But you also need to be near the edge of the pit. So there's something about being vulnerable ourselves when we're standing in the gap for somebody else. And so Elijah, deeply vulnerable, holding this dead child in his arms, but trusting in the power of the living God. He lies prostrate on this boy three times, and goodness knows why he does that, because theologians can't work it out really either. And and he prays, God, do something about this situation. Bring this boy back to life. And in that moment, he begins to breathe. And the boy's life is restored. And then Elijah restores the boy back to his mother. You know, what seems impossible and beyond all our expectations in this story is possible to God because he specializes in impossibilities. 
And so just as we finish, some questions. You know, what are the impossibilities that you are facing that you need to have confidence to bring before our faithful God? Is there a fear that's binding you and perhaps holding you back just in your life in general or, or maybe in terms of how you relate to Jesus that you need him to help you to break free from? Do not be afraid. I am with you, God says. Maybe you're carrying a burden for a seemingly impossible situation and you're carrying it maybe for yourself or for somebody else or for something that's happening in the world. Sometimes we can get so burdened, can't we, by what's happening in the world around us. And we just need to let go. And yet, bang on God's door and plead on behalf of ourselves or somebody else or the world, but also learn to trust in the love and power of the God who is the God of impossibilities. So let's pray for a moment. Father God, we pray that you would expand our imaginations of what you want to do in our lives, what you want to do in our world, what you want to do in our relationships, in our workplaces, that, that in the people and the places that you've put on our heart tonight. And Lord, it might be that some of us are feeling nudged to be the person to stand in the gap. To show what it means to be faithful and to trust in you. To be a bit like Elijah was with that woman and say, you know, I believe that God can do this. God, give us confidence in you and courage to stand in the gap if that's what you're calling us to. For those of us who need to face something that we're fearing, Holy Spirit, we ask that in your gentleness and your kindness this evening, we would know those words, do not be afraid, I am with you, resonate deeply into our minds and our hearts in a way that is transformative tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.